as part of our celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the birth of the Protestant Church, and in particular for us, the beginnings of the Presbyterian tradition, we have been talking about just three of what you might call marks of Reformed faith, things that are true about having a a Reformed faith, as it's called. And we began with the statement, grace alone, that God's gift of Jesus Christ comes to us by grace, and grace alone and needs, needs nothing else. And scripture alone, that it is revealed to us, and we learn about it in, in scripture alone. We don't need anything to help us with that. All we need is scripture. And so we turn to this final week and focus on faith alone, that that is how it's seen in our lives is through faith. And so we look at Paul's, a piece of what Paul is writing in Romans. We pick up kind of in mid-argument or mid-conversation, and he's talking about Abraham and the law and a lot of things, but this is what he says. For the promise that Abraham would inherit the world did not come to him or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason... It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead because he was about a hundred years old, or when he was considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. You have been, you are, and you always shall be our God. That you promise. Remind us today of what faith in light of that promise looks like. Remind us today of how faith comes alive in our own hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. That we may live it out in the world as we go from this place. Remind us, we pray. Amen.
So, what makes you a Christian? What is it that makes you a Christian? Is it because you read the Bible? Is that what makes you a Christian? Is it, is it because you were born into a family that happened to be Christian? Is that what makes you a Christian? Is it because you learned some set of rules that are supposed to be what Christians do? Is that what it is? I, I know what it is. It's because... You do good for others, right? That's, you do good for others, and you're part of a church, and you pray sometimes. That's what makes you. Isn't that it? Or is it? What is it that makes you a Christian? It is this kind of question that Paul is wrestling with and trying to get us to understand that's at the heart of what he's saying in this stuff we just read from Romans and really in the whole of that chapter and in the chapter prior to it and really in most of the letter itself. Paul's, you can see it, sense it, him trying to work all this stuff out. Just what is it that makes us who we are in the eyes of God? What makes us right? In God's eyes. What makes us righteous in the eyes of God? What is it? And he goes to the obvious choice, the most obvious character he can think of. Pulls up Abraham and points at Abraham and says, what is it that makes Abraham? Well, Abraham. I mean, it's Abraham. What makes Abraham Abraham, and he starts this long, this list of things, just a couple of things he lists out. He says, is it because Abraham was circumcised, the sign of the covenant, because he had the sign of the covenant? Is that what made him right in the eyes of God? Is that how it looked and he, how he knew it because of the sign? It can't be that, though, he argues with himself, because it hadn't happened yet. That came later. He didn't even know about that at the beginning of Abraham's story. Sign of the covenant hasn't even been given to him yet. He comes later. He's like 90 when that happens. Could it be that he obeys the law, God's law, which for Paul means the Ten Commandments and the law? It can't be that, he says, because that hadn't happened yet. That's Moses. That's, I mean, that's like way off into the future. Neither of those things existed. None of them as yet existed. And yet, here Abraham is still Abraham receiving this promise. What is it then? And he rules out everything he can think of so that he can give us what he knows. And that is that it is on faith. It is by faith. There is nothing else for Abraham. What we have to remember about Abraham, as Paul lays it out for us so well in Romans throughout the first part of this letter, is that at the very beginning, there was no sign of the covenant. There was no written tablets or anything. None of that exists. It simply came to him in faith. He heard a word. And he believed that word. He chose to place his faith in the promise that God had given him. 
Go and depart from your land and let me show you the land you will inherit, he said to Abraham. And so, on an act of sheer faith alone, Abraham grabs his family and starts to seek the land that God said he would show him. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews that we read, puts it this way. He says, by faith, Abraham set out not knowing where he was going. Have you ever done that? Set out? Really not knowing anything about where you were going? That's what it says. By faith, he stayed in the land as if in a foreign land, Hebrews puts it. Living in tents, not knowing what's going to happen. Where are we? Why are we here? This is supposed to be what is it? He did it and stayed there by faith. And faith alone. It is for this reason, Paul says. That the promise depends on faith so that it might rely on grace. In other words, a gift like that can't come to us undeserved if we have to do something to get it. So it shows up as an act of faith, an act of trust. And it all boiled down to Abraham's decision, his choice, to put his faith in this God who made this promise, faith, nothing else. New Testament professor Paul Actemeyer lifts up Abraham as a perfect example, as he puts it, of what faith and trust in God really looks like. This is what he says. He says, as Abraham makes clear, such trust means never wavering in the conviction that what God has promised, God will in fact accomplish. It means not to waver in that trust even when the whole of the visible world seems to point to the foolishness of trusting like that. It means trusting in God's good purposes, even when the daily news screams evidence that sin rules the world and evil rages unchecked. That's what it means. Faith and faith alone. It's that kind of thinking that was in the mind of Martin Luther 500 years ago when he posted his 95 points about the church, his arguments, his grievances. He was hoping to begin a dialogue, right? And, of course, it turned out to be something a little different. It became a movement and gave birth to our understanding of faith and what it looks like. That's what happened. And and it was in the mind of Luther is what is faith? What is it that makes us Christian? And he he was he was oh he was going against what was believed at the time. He came to a different understanding. The understanding at the time was that a person could not have faith unless and until the church gave it to them, imparted it upon them. That that was the function of the church. It's just a different way. But it was the function of the church to impart God's grace upon you so that you might have faith. That's what baptism was all about. So when the priest prayed over the water, it was a pool, but when the priest prayed over the water, 
said the magic words, you know. And all of a sudden, when they did that, the water ceased to be water, and all of a sudden became God's grace. Liquid grace, you might call it. And then you'd take that poor soul, and you'd dunk them in it, right? Just dunk them in the grace of God. But it wasn't until that very moment that they were able to have faith. Oh, you might look like you have faith. You might talk like you have faith. You use the right language, but it's not really. Not until we have the actual event of baptism and we dunk you in the mass and pill you up. The way it was thought was that the church, in effect, took an unrighteous person and made them righteous. And it all revolved around the Latin word for righteousness, justificare, which means to make righteous. It literally means to make righteous. And so that was the understanding that the church's function was to make you right in the eyes of God. And until that happened, you were not right in the eyes of God. You could not have faith. That It came from nowhere else. And so Luther began to really wrestle with that and he, he kind of started to move in a different direction. He started to do some research, which is, you know, always bad for when we've been doing things the way we've been doing them, and that's the only reason. So, you know, research. He started to research, and instead of looking at the Latin, he looked at the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in in the first place. The Latin was a translation, right? So he looked at the Greek, and the Greek word for righteousness, dikaios, which appears throughout the New Testament, he looked at that word, and what he discovered was that it means something quite different. A subtle but very big difference. Instead of meaning to make righteous, as if to produce righteousness, the Greek word for righteousness means to regard as righteous, to count as righteous. In other words, to recognize that you are right in the eyes of God already. That in Jesus Christ, you are already right in the eyes of God. There's nothing you can do to make that possible. It's already there. Nothing the church can do to make that possible. In other words, you don't need the church to dunk you in a pot of grace. You just need to know that you already have it. You don't need to do some list to make you Christian. You don't need to do a list to make you Christian. You do the list not in order to win God over, to earn God's favor, but because you already have it. What does your life look like? What does it appear like in the world when you know that God already favors you. Paul says, looks like faith. Preaching professor Stan Mast reminds us of this. He says, there are no qualifications for salvation. There are no conditions, no performance standards, no levels of achievement, no rungs to climb. No one is shut out because of what they have done or not done. No one is excluded because of religious or ethnic or racial background. Salvation cannot be achieved by any act of devotion or obedience. It can't be achieved. But it can be received. 
It can be received by faith. Faith in what the gospel says God has already done in Jesus Christ. God gives us his favor as a gift of grace, undeserved, unmerited, grace alone. We learn it as we read scripture together, as we learn this story, as we see what the life of Christ looks like. Scripture alone, we decide to live it by faith, and that is our decision to make, faith alone. I've often talked here and there, I guess, about my grandfather's ministry to the maximum security prison in Huntsville, Texas, and back in the 90s. And he did a chapel service there once a month for seven years. And the deal was, as I've said before, every now and then, in order to keep doing it, the inmates had to invite you back. He was the only one that they ever invited back, ever. And for seven years, they invited him back every single month. <clears throat> and he went, did this chapel service. And he did it in the walls unit, which is the part of the prison for death row inmates. They all had a date, all of them. And one night when he was there, in a moment of glaring honesty that can only happen when you've been with the same group of people for a long time, long enough to start to let your guard down and actually trust one another. In a moment of glaring honesty, one of the prisoners raised his hand. What does God think of us? What do you mean, my grandfather asked, trying to scramble to see if he could get a little more. Well, the prisoner said, we're not exactly in this place because we've been model citizens. <laughs> and they all started to chuckle. And we've been, we keep getting told by this place that we are the worst of the worst. So what does God think of us? My grandfather paused because he knew that what he said was going to be pretty important. That this is a question that had been long in coming. And he looked out at him and he said, when it comes to God, it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter what you look like. It does not matter how well you've accomplished some list of things or not. What matters to God is if you believe. If you believe. And he went on from that and he said, well, you know, we're good, right? We're good. We're comfortable with each other. We're friends. I would call us friends. We're friends. He gets some nods from this room. And 
he looks at them with that kind of look that said the next words out of his mouth might just become the most important decision they ever make. And he said this, he says, can you put your faith in a God like that? Because I'll be quite honest with you, I would have written it different. But scripture tells us that what matters to God is do you believe? Can you put your faith in a God like that? Well, can you? 